Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Inside Cricket, two days to go until the first Ashes Test match of this series and we're going to preview that today and also look at some of your responses to the World Cup win and the legacy that that has hopefully left. Simon Mann's away this week but I've got a special guest today, I'm very pleased to say, Andrew McDonald who played for Australia and Victoria and you're a treble winning coach as well Andrew actually because you won with the Melbourne Renegades and then Victoria all three tournaments in the uh, Australian summer last year which is an amazing achievement we'd love to talk about that a bit and you're over here to mastermind Birmingham Phoenix in the 100 which obviously doesn't start till next year so you're, do, you're sort of on a recce I mean what are you doing here actually in terms of the 100? Well thanks firstly for having us uh, Simon great to be here um Obviously, English summers uh, welcomed us again with a bit of rain as <laughs> yeah. we sit here and look out the, to the Edgebaston Square that's fully covered. Um, yeah, a little bit of a, a recce, so to speak, um, and a bit of personal development as well. So originally, um, I was set um, with a, an exchange with the Renegades and, and Lancashire. We've got a coaching exchange there. Um, and then on the back of um, getting the, the, the nod for the 100 job with the Birmingham-based team, um, I decided to change it to, to a Birmingham-based uh, PD uh, expedition, which has also taken in a bit of planning and development for the um, the hundred, which I'm hugely excited about. Albeit it's uh, some time away. Do you think that the the, the hundred uh, kind of style and way of playing will be any different to how you approach a, a, a T20, the Big Bash, or the IPL kind of performance? Yeah, I mean, first, first and foremost, the draft on the twentieth of October is the the critical part to to get your team that you probably want and and be able to have a team that wants to play the style that you're planning on playing. Um, post the draft, we'll probably look to see whether we'll be able to execute that, depending on the personnel that we've got. But I think there'll be some subtle differences: um, twenty balls less, um, percentage of power play slightly less with twenty five balls versus thirty six um, in the T twenty. Uh, format out of the 120 balls, so percentage-wise, there's there's, there's um, a little bit um, more scope there in terms of what you can do. Five ball overs, the ability to bowl back to back, lots of five as well to make it a ten, ten ball over, so to speak. 
Um, I think there's going to be some changes in, in the way the teams structure up. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to give too much away as to what we're planning on doing come the draft and how we want to um, execute the style of play or the team that we want uh, to put in formation to execute that style of play. But I think there'll be some subtle differences um, and there may be um, some players that potentially good T20 players that, that potentially miss out in terms of the direction the 100 goes. So you're on a bit of a scouting mission in a way, I suppose. Are you kind of looking at the vitality blast and looking at players that you think, mm, yeah, they... They might be one for us. Yeah, definitely. It's a good time of the year to be over here. So I've, I've spent some time with uh, the Birmingham Bears um, uh, and also the Worcester Rapids um, over the last couple of weeks. So I've uh, been able to be in the change room. Um, so thanks to Jim Trouton and uh, Alex Gibbon, who are assistant coaches uh, within the, the, the Birmingham-based team set up as well. So it's been great to see behind the scenes how players tick, get, get an understanding of... Um, the players, the the opposition, um, what sort of players are out there. Um, it hasn't changed too much in terms of the personnel since I was here in 2016 when I coached Leicester as well, so that's probably good that I've got that base also. Um, so I know a lot of the players that are travelling around still on, on the county scene. So, yeah, it, I mean, you could call it a bit of a scouting um, mm. uh, mission as well at the same time. What's the key been to your success as a coach, do you think? Because it's, it's pretty unprecedented. In fact, I think the last time a team won all three tournaments in England was Warwickshire right here actually under Dermot Reeve with a bit of Bob Wilmer's help well a lot of Bob Wilmer's help so uh, it's it's quite a hard thing to manage a team through three different formats yeah. you know they're so the, the, the formats are sort of almost uh, you know separating more and more aren't they they're very distinct so what has been the essence do you think of your success as a coach for Victoria and Melbourne. Uh, I think having good assistant coaches. I think having a good backroom team as well. I think it's um, you know whilst the head coach does get sometimes the applauds for for what happens. I think that it's an entire team effort. Uh, the planning and preparation that goes into each format now, I think, is um, you know is at a high level. Um, the, the time and effort that we put into that um, is huge. Making sure that we've prepared the players. Um, you know they know exactly what's about to happen in terms of the games. We go through a lot of what-if scenarios. Uh, so we do have a lot of strategy meetings um, behind the scenes as coaches, and then we drip feed the relevant information back into the players. But um, my coaching team back home has got a, you know, a huge work ethic, and you know, they should get a lot of the credit as well um, in that. So, um, look, we, we use some analytics. Um, you know, man management, I think, is still critical um, within anything. Uh, you've got to drop players. You've got to pick them. Um, it's an emotional game. Uh, built around human beings so I think man management is probably critical as well to, to ride through the ups and downs of three different formats and, and three different playing groups essentially so, so in a way it's quite a hard balance to strike between the analytics and the planning and also the man management and understanding that different players require different sorts of inputs yeah. some need to be left alone to play their own way so how do you get that balance right because it must be in a way, you can overload players with, with too much information. Yeah, definitely. Um, so some players, you know, coming out of strategy meetings, um, which includes captains and vice-captains within that, um, it may be a 30-second conversation with certain players and maybe a 25-minute conversation with others. Um, we've gone uh, away from um, team meetings as such. Um, we believe that if we build the individual um, and give them the information required, and, and as you said, they've got different learning styles, they take information in differently, so we really tailor-make that for them specifically. So uh, is this more one 
one-on-one. One-on-one, yeah. So we, we do a lot, a lot of one-on-one as opposed to team group meetings, um, I think. All bowlers and batsmen yeah, kind of things. I mean, it's probably born about by the fact that as a medium pace, we've bowled about 122 k's an hour. I sat in meetings that were talking about bouncers and Yorkers and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And it was really, it wasn't relevant to me. So I wasted a lot of time as a player sitting in those meetings, um, which had no relevance to me. That just bowled stump to stump. And I sat next to some spinners over my time, Bryce McGain, John Holland, and, and they were also in those meetings that were tailor-made for the guys who bowled 135 plus. So um, it's probably uh, when you build your the way you want to coach, it's probably you, you learn from the coaches that you had beforehand. You take the positives, you take the negatives, and then you try to mesh it into to what you would have liked as a player. And, and that's probably how I've gone about my work in the early stage of my coaching career. You've obviously seen from afar as well as close at hand the, the negative sort of rumours around the 100 and the negative feelings. Uh, I'm afraid 95% of the cricketer magazine readers are fairly anti the 100. How are we going to win them over, do you think? Well, through experience, I think that, you know, when we look back to when Big Bash was born and um, I was a player back then, and, I, and I'm thankful that the administrators cracked on and, and unru- you know, unveiled the tournament as they did because if I was an administrator back then, the BBL, uh, as it is in its current form with eight franchise teams, would never have existed because I was anti it at the time. So I've learned through that experience that we, sh- we shouldn't be closed-minded. Um, and, and really, to be honest, it's not really about our generation. Um, you know, we love Test Match Cricket. We love all the other formats. I'm a massive fan of T20 and the 100 also, but it's really designed at the younger population. If you look at the, the BBL, and its growth it's been through young kids and the litmus test for me is my kids I've got kids 9 and 7 and, and they call cricket Big Bash um, to me that that says it all it's about pitching to that new audience which is what the, the 100 wants to do uh, there's going to be some free to wear content so it's going to be accessible to to all demographics of, of people so it's not going to exclude people that can't afford pay TV there's going to be the option on pay TV as well um, so this is, this is a game that I think will hit all corners of the marketplace, um, in particular the kids, and, and they're the new fans that we want to capture. Um, Test match cricket might might not be the format for them, so why should we then exclude them from this new brand uh, that's going to have great colours, that's going to have great fan interaction um, during game time, um, which is one of the great strengths of all the franchise competitions around the world. It's, it's entertainment, um, and I think that when you start to think about I get excited thinking about it, three overseas, the best uh, English talent, I think the quality of cricket, and I'll probably get my backside kicked from this from a, from the BBL point of view, but I think it'll be the second best competition in the world outside of uh, the IPL, okay. and that only bodes well for, for the development of English cricket um, and the players within that system. Now, you've obviously mentioned the, the young, uh, new audience that, that this is targeting, but what about the traditional cricket fan? The word entertainment fills them with dread, I think, the, the sort of more traditional county fan. So what experience have you seen in the BBL that has kept the traditional cricket fan interested? The quality of cricket. Um, and when and it s- has actually worked. Has it, it has worked, yeah. You still see, I mean, I think there was some, you know, the, the scepticism leading into the BBL was that it was going to be a bit Mickey Mouse. Um, it's a serious game now. And I think the IPL had the same uh, reaction for the first couple of years where they said this is a Mickey Mouse competition. Now it's a competition that coaches want to be involved in and players want to be involved in desperately. And the 100 is creating that sort of energy outside of England. Um, you know, you talk to the Australian players who have got a, a clear gap at that time of the year, they will be nominating for the draft because they want to be a part of it. So I think the quality of cricket will attract the traditional cricket fans there. They will want to turn up and, and watch 
Aaron Finch, um, AB de Villiers, these guys, you know, at Middlesex, I think the crowds are rolling in now because AB de Villiers is mm. there um, because of the quality of cricket that these guys can produce. So you talk about entertainment within the game, um, but also for the cricketing fan, you're getting quality cricket out there, and that should excite the cricketing fan to see the skills on display, um, in my opinion. So that's what I think will be a nice gathering of the, the new fans, the old fans. They might not turn up for the first couple of games, but I think they'll get swept up in terms of the quality of cricket, and I'd be surprised if they don't turn the TV on. OK, well, let's switch our attention to what's out there in two days' time. We're looking at uh, the Edgbaston outfield, which is covered at the moment. A uh, traditional bit of English uh, drizzle has been falling this morning, but I'm sure that won't deter the play from starting on Thursday. The forecast is reasonable for the rest of the week. Um, clearly, it's good having you here with your Australian hat on to, to look at the, the prospects for the Ashes. My feeling is that, actually, for once... England's preparation hasn't been as good as Australia's. You see a lot of uh, these series where, because test series are so condensed now and teams don't want to spend three, four weeks preparing for a test series, they arrive, play, have a couple of games and then get hammered in the first test uh, when they're playing under the home side. So this time, Australia have either had players playing in county cricket, like the Labishanis and um, Cameron Bancroft, people like that, or they've had several players out here playing uh, Australia A, uh, then on the warm-up game as well. So whereas England have been lurching from World Cup to a fairly lamentable game against Ireland and suddenly into an Ashes series, is that how you see it, that maybe the Australian preparation is actually better than England's? Yeah, oh, preparation's a funny one, isn't it? Because sometimes you think you get it absolutely right and you start slow, your two opening batters let you down and, and suddenly you're two for ten and under the pump and your preparation really becomes irrelevant. So I, I really think it comes down to that first initial contact within this game, um, both bat and ball, whoever can get that right. You know, you'll go from there, um, but you're dead right that you know. I think Pat Howard was Pat Howard's brainchild a, a while ago to get you know all the best cricketers uh, from Australia here at one point in time, play a quality warm-up match. The question for me in that is, yes, they'll be ready for the first test, but the length of time that you're on the road does that mean potentially at the back end that you know they might be you know a bit drained in terms of um, being here for the, for that period of time, whereas the English have probably had a little bit of a break and a freshen up and connected back with family. Um, and those sorts of things. So there's positives and negatives for, for being here early and an extended period of time. I think Trevor Bayless will, will have his players prepared pretty well. I think they've, you know, the modern day cricketer is pretty well equipped to, to bounce from shorter format into long format. Um, you see England players coming from the IPL well, yeah, rushing back. And yes. So yeah. so these guys are well accustomed to, to actually doing that. And and it really, I suppose, on home soil, it hasn't really um, let England down, allowing those players to go and play in the IPL and having, having a little bit of white ball focus. I know Ashley Giles mentioned uh, yesterday in a press conference that he wanted uh, you know, probably more focus on, on, on red ball cricket. Um, but I think you, you've got to find a balance, haven't you? I think that you know, the 50-over players, I mean, Josh Butler, I think, is a fantastic player. I think Joe Root will, will be fine at test match level, uh, albeit on a shorter preparation. They played against Ireland um, in difficult conditions down there at Lord, So they've had a test match leading in. So I think that both teams will be prepared the way that they want to prepare based upon the circumstances that were presented to each, each of the teams. We'll talk about England in a minute, but uh, let's talk about Australia. We've just heard Justin Langer there talking about the team and refusing to give away the Australia likely 11 it suggests to me that Bancroft will open with Warner, uh, that Kawada, if he's fit, will, will bat at three, and that they'll have uh, Smith at four, Travis Head five, Lubbishani six. Is that how you see it? Well, I think 
at the start of the press conference, he sort of hinted that he wasn't going to give much away. But then, as the press press conference went on, I thought he gave away <laughs> the fact that Bancroft was going to play. So yes, I think I, I think we're both in agreement that Bancroft will play. Um, look, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Matthew Wade plays at six. Okay. Um, rather than Marnus, uh, that would be my tip. Uh, I know that's a little bit left field, but I just think that. You've picked him in a squad. It's the first time he's been picked in a, in a test squad for a period of time. I would have thought that you would have picked him with a viewpoint of playing him. His form's been outstanding. Uh, a thousand runs back home. Uh, him and Marcus Harris, um, the first time it's been done with a Dukes ball, um, Kookaburra combination. So that's a, that's a very positive so sign. So you're playing the Duke with the Dukes in the second half of the, the season? The second half of the season. So it's the, those two was the first time that people had made a thousand runs against the Kookaburra first half right. and the Dukes second half. So I think that, that Harris would be stiff to miss, um, but he potentially could if Kawaja's fit. Now is Kawaja fit is the big question. Okay. So if Kawaja's not fit, I've got in my head Harris, Warner, Bancroft, Smith, Head, Wade, Payne. So that's mm. my top seven. If Kwaja's fit, I think you're right in saying that Harris will probably miss and it'll look like Warner, so Bancroft, Kwaja, yeah. Smith. So Head. you think Labuschagne won't play then? Because he's just scored 1,000 runs for Glamorgan and looks like he has a compact sort of method. He's made some runs in that warm-up game as well and Langer's kind of quite been quite strong on players that have looked acclimatised to English conditions. Yeah, I think Matthew Wade was making hundreds as well, well against uh, you know some some county teams there um, in the A series, and you know he's weighed the numbers last summer. Um, right. We shouldn't forget the shield runs as well. I know that sometimes that the recency <coughs> bias um, can sway selectors at certain points in time. Look, Marnus no doubt deserves his spot in the squad, um, but who is the better out and out batter out of the two at the moment? Um, I'm, I'm pushing for Wade purely mm. on what I saw last okay. year, coaching against him. Amanis dropped off at the back end of the Shield season, whereas Wade against Pattinson, Siddle, Bolan and Tremaine, which is a very good domestic attack, um, made them look, well, I shouldn't say this, but he made, he made them look quite pedestrian at times. Um, and that, to me, was a guy that was a level above Shield cricket. And, and lo and behold, there's two of those guys that are in the, in the test attacks in Pattinson and Siddle. So mm. I think that's pretty good form lines if you, if you want to start to, to match up form lines. Talking about the, the the bowlers, then again, Langer was a little guarded about which which players will play. What, what do you see the Australian attack be? What's their best attack for this pitch here at Edgbaston? Um, Pattinson. Pattinson. So he's going to come in from oh, having not played for quite a long time, really. Oh, I think he'll come test in. He, yeah, a test cricket for a long time. Um, he's fit. He's available. Um, that's half the battle with Pattinson. We've seen when he does come back into the test side, he performs well. Um, the key for him is how they manage him through the series, how they manage the So who's he going to play instead of then? Well, let me get to it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Pattinson. Um, Stark. Stark. Not, not no. in my side. No. Cummins. So, Cummins. Yeah. Cummins. Yeah. Pattinson. Siddle, Siddle slash Hazelwood. Right. Now, I think there'll be a discussion and conversation on where Hazelwood's been, whether he's ready to go for this contest, and then obviously Nathan Lyon. But I think they'll leave Stark out of this one. Because? I, I just think that traditionally here that getting the ball in the right area is probably at a premium and, the, and I think those other bowlers probably do that better than Stark I think if you go to a flatter surface at Lords, um, I'd have Stark straight in so I think there'll just be a little bit of horses for courses um, in, in the way they do things and I think Stark had a little bit of a niggle um, in that Australia A game, there was a bit of and I'm only reading what the, the press were writing but he didn't bowl as much potentially as what he could have in that game, there was some you know, some talk around his ankle again, and then he went out, and I think he got through a few overs, but I think they'll be concerned about that. So I think 
Pattinson, Cummins, Siddle slash Hazelwood would be the, the three quicks plus line. I don't think they'll be drawn into playing an all-rounder, so therefore wait at six for mine. But I, I wouldn't be surprised mm. if Manus does take the six. You put up a good case for him at six. Mm. <clears throat> and England, would you advocate Root batting at three? There's a lot of talk about it. What do you think? What would you do if you were the coach, Trevor Bayliss? Yeah, well, or the captain. In yeah, the I think. Well, he's the captain, so yeah. he, he does the batting order. Uh, I think he's put his hand up and said he should bat three. I think that's a, that's a strong positive move. Um, I think it also takes the pressure off finding a number three. I think he'll do a good job, and, and if he does a good job at three, it makes it easier for the number four. So it's probably a softer seat for that player that's probably not in the same, I shouldn't say not the same class level, but not as well performed at Test Match Cricket. He, he's allowing that person to a softer seat by his hard work at three. So I think it's a great move. I think it's a positive step. Uh, I think it's great leadership um, if, that, if that's what's unfolding. And, and the, the journalists are right in terms of that conversation that Joe Root had with Trevor Bayliss, and he's initiated that. So full credit to him. And I think it's a, it's a real positive move um, Test match one rather than potentially you know putting Denley at three he fails and then making the move Test mm. match three so it's a positive it, step it's a positive step and mm. you know it's, it's it makes a lot of sense for mine does it um, and Jason Roy can he convert to being a Test match opener you never say never we had the same conversation around Aaron Finch opening up in Australia sometimes middle order players are, are more suited there. Um, I thought Aaron Finch, I made it pretty clear that he's a middle-order player for Victoria. I thought that that potentially could have been his spot in the Australian team if they mm. wanted him to play long-term. Um, they haven't got any obvious openers reading what's happening over here, so I think Jason Roy's better off playing than not playing. Um, I think he'll be re- rewarded more in the second innings of games when things flatten out, and if he does get a tight attack, he could be very, very dangerous at the top of the order. So I'm not going to say he can't play test cricket like others have. I, I think there's... There's some transferable skills from batting number six to opening. Uh, I just hope he plays his way, um, mm. an aggressive style of cricket. And, and I, I just hope that if it doesn't go well in the first couple of test matches, they stick with him and get him to play positive cricket. And um, you know, we saw Aaron Finch clearly only lasted through, I think it was three test matches against India, who's a world-class bowling attack. But I thought he was a, wasn't as positive as he could have been in that in that moment um, of his test career. And I think that might have cost him. I think if he looks back on it, I think he's been pretty open around that. He could have done things a little bit differently. So I hope Jason Roy and those those two players, sorry, so I'm sure that they would have conversed um, in the last couple of weeks. I hope that he goes out there and really plays positive cricket and entertaining test match cricket. I, I do remember, actually, uh, Finch opening the batting against India, I think, in Adelaide. And he got a big inswinger from Ishant Sharma early on. Went for a big booming drive and stumps flew everywhere. Yeah. So I, I suppose he was trying to be positive, but I suppose it's about choosing the right ball. In a yeah, way. exactly. Exactly right. It's been selective. I think that was more nervous that shot. I, we were all the Victorians were huddled around the TV watching him make that. Make that. Um, I think it was his test debut, wasn't it? And Sharma nipped one back through the gate. It was a good ball. It actually. was a good ball. Yeah, and it was yeah. But he made it look even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but I think those guys definitely can can open the batting if they get the situation on their terms. Then they're very dangerous. We've seen Saywag and guys like that at the top of the order be successful. So I think Jason Roy's got the game definitely to play Test cricket. Just whether it's opening, who knows? Time will tell. No, I'm going to put you on the spot for a prediction in a minute. But first, I'm just going to hear some some other people give their predictions. So. Here, uh, we, I, I, the other day at the Irish Test match, I spoke to Andy Caddick, former England bowler, of course, Mike Gatting, who won the Ashes in 86-7 for England as captain, Derek Pringle, who's played in several Ashes series, and the inevitable Geoffrey Boycott. So here's their predictions, and then you can give us yours afterwards. 
Gat, your predictions for the Ashes? I think it'll be 4-1 to England. My only worry is that uh, our batting, which uh, can be a little bit brittle at times, especially up the front, um, might, uh, might not be as combative maybe as the Australians. But uh, at this moment in time, two very, very good bowling sides. Both sides have got batting problems. Um, certainly up the front end anyway, uh, and I think that's going to be uh, a real big factor, and I'm just hoping that uh, we uh, get our act together a bit, uh, bit, bit, bit sooner than the Aussies do. Caddy, I want your predictions for the Ashes. Um, it's a strange one, because I, I just think at the moment the Aussies have got the upper hand at the moment, especially after watching this Irish Test match. Um, we've got a few concerns at the top of the order, which is uh, my main concern. Bowling-wise, if the team stays fit, it's going to be a hard summer, so uh, our bowling attack has to stay very fit. But the other concern I really have is the spinning. Um, Lyons is a true uh, world-class bowler, and I don't think we've got that in our spinning department. So, yeah, it's pretty evenly... It might even end up in a, in a tall draw. Uh, you never know. I'm just being a bit pessimistic at the moment. It's... Um, from what I see at the moment, I'm not too happy with what England has set up at the moment. I make England narrow favourites because they're at home in Australia. Not one in England for 18 years. However, <laughs> um, much will depend, I think, on the uh, new ball attacks of both teams. They're both pretty potent, potentially, and uh, I think whoever sees the other off best will win the series. But England narrow favourites, I think probably 2-1. Well, the way the England team are going, I don't think anybody can predict. Yeah, nobody saw this coming, the way they batted here. The mind isn't right. And can you tell me, can they get the mind in gear for this first test match? If you can tell me that, then they'll have a chance. But having seen what they've dished up here, nobody in the right mind could put money on them. And they've got Joffrey Archer with a slight side strain. The Jimmy Anderson, they say he's fit again, but he hasn't bowled for ages. Uh, the f top three can't bat. And I'll be better off putting my mum and I in. We bat a hell of a lot better. Now, Tony's padding up to bat number three. So we've got three places so there. Pretty poor. So keep your money in your pocket till I see how they turn up at Edgebaston. I'm with Andrew McDonald, coach of the Melbourne Renegades and Victoria, and soon to be the coach of the Birmingham Phoenix in the 100. You coached actually uh, in, in England before, I know, because you coached Leicestershire as well, didn't you? And played for Leicestershire too. So you've got lots of experience of, of the English game. Boycott, you've got lots of experience of some of his comments as well, I should think. You've read and heard him over the years. What did you think of that line or two? Yeah, not very positive towards what <laughs> what England may produce, but look, you, you sort of understand what he's saying there. That there's some unpredictability about the the teams that are going to be put out um, in, in terms of batting, in particular. I think you shouldn't have concerns around England's bowling. I think that England's bowling solid. They've got all bases covered. I think Moen Alley in English conditions is is world class, and it shows with his his numbers and his statistics over a period of time. Um, so the spinning departments there, the pace bowling, it's just whether they play Broad and Anderson in the same side uh, or whether Joffre Archer's fit. So there's a few moving parts there. But I think the big concern is top orders and top orders in both teams. Uh, I think whoever can make the runs at the top of the order, I think gives their team probably the slight advantage. So I'm thinking at Edgebaston, I'm thinking it's hard to beat England here. So I think Australia potentially could go one nil down. But then Lord's great hunting ground for Australia. So probably one all after the first two test matches. 
and then I think game on anything could happen. So oh, I'm predicting a two-all yeah. tied series. Yes, yeah. I am. Actually. So I think there'll be a draw somewhere just due to <coughs> weather, mm. um, but I think it'll be one all out of the first couple, and I think whoever you know, whoever obviously wins at Manchester might go a, a, you know, slightly ahead or whatever it may be. But I'm thinking two-all will be the final score. But I think the teams are hard to, to split, in my opinion. Yeah, and I agree with you about the the batting because. In, in in many series, you sort of say, well, the bowlers are going to win the test because they've got to take 20 wickets. But I sort of think with this series, the bowlers almost cancel each other out, especially if England have an archer playing. I, I suspect they won't risk archer in this first test. He hasn't had enough bowling. He hasn't had enough rest. He hasn't played any red ball cricket for about a year. Yeah. So I, I think, and it, it may not be the ideal pitch for him, although I think he could probably bowl anywhere, practically. Uh, but but Manderson Broad know this territory really well. Obviously, Wokes does. So I, th- I can see that being the, the basis of England's attack. But actually, I think the bowlers will cancel each other out. I think it's the batsmen, and it's who can protect... The, the middle orders of both teams. You, you don't want Smith coming in at you know twenty for two, do you? And clearly, you don't want Root coming in at five for one either. So, I can see the opening pairs as being quite important as that little bridge, uh, that you know, breathing space to not expose the best players to the new ball. Uh, and whoever does that best will will win. I think that's as simple as it gets. Uh, I think whatever top order can function. Um, and I think selectors are going to be pivotal in this too. So what selectors can hold their nerve and make sure there's not too many changes, then continuity of team, if the top six can resemble the first test to the fifth test, I think that team's probably in a good position. So I think selectors are going to play a big part here. They hold their nerve after two test matches when potentially some openers have failed. Don't make changes, invest in those players and see if they can get them through the series because I think that exposing new players mid-series is, is always fraught with danger. So, And it also it, it gives away a sort of uncertainty about selection too. If you start dropping people... I mean, there was that famous series in 1989 where England played 29 players. Well, Australia won 4-0. But you, you, if, you, if you know when you start a series that the opposition isn't really sure their best team or even their best eight, you know, they're, they're so uncertain about several players, that does give you confidence, I guess. Yeah, or moving parts. I mean, the nerves of coming into to a test match in an Ashes series in particular, I mean, will be huge, uh, especially when the moving parts are potentially going to be the top order as well. Um, if that's the fr- fragility of both teams, then you know, I think Warner's probably a, a lock, but who's around Warner? Bancroft, unproven, eight test matches, averaging under 30. Um, Danley on the other side of things as well. Um, so there's a few new players, inexperienced test match players, but also that, I mean, that's exciting, isn't it? Some of these guys potentially will make a name for themselves in, in what mm. Australia and England classifies the most important series in world cricket. How's David Warner going to be? Uh, not necessarily saying mentally, but actually technically, because he's had two very successful white ball tournaments, the most runs in the IPL, second most runs in the World Cup. But I've sort of seen, technically, he's, he's almost exacerbated that tendency to stay on the leg side and try and open up the offside. Could that be a technical problem for him, do you think, that England could exploit? I think that it could be, but I think that's probably um, indicative of white ball cricket, isn't it, where you want to free your hands a little bit more, you, you set up potential on leg stump to give yourself access to the offside a little bit more, throw your hands through the line of the ball. So, look, he might make an adjustment. If they come around the wicket, he might cover off stump a little bit more, so therefore line the ball up more. Um, so I think he'll make the adjustments. I think players of that quality um, tactically are pretty smart, depending on the conditions, whether it's swinging or not. Um, he's he's able to, to work through 
many situations. And I think he averages high 40s in Test cricket for a reason. So uh, I'm not, I haven't checked his average, but I'm, I'd gather it's around that. So um, 48, I, I think. Yeah, 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 I think he'd be pretty well equipped um, to do that. Smith, the same. Smith moves into the line of the ball, predominantly leg side, leaves outside the off stump well when he's going. Um, 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 if you were, um, you were a bowler, where would you bowl to Smith early on? Because there's, uh, there's two we're, schools we're, of thought. We've had we've had many theories. Yeah, in, in, in well, I mean, so there's yeah. a sort of school of thought: hang outside yeah. off yeah. and make him drive at one, yeah. or go straight and pack the leg side. Yeah, I, I think you have a crack at going Both. straight and pack the leg side, side. because I mean yeah. you're bringing in the most amount of dismissals possible that way uh, early on. So. I think Jimmy Anderson went around the wicket in a pink ball test match in Adelaide as well and tried to swing it back at him. Um, so I think stumps would be the way to go. They reinforce the leg side field. And that way, if you do get one to straighten, you bring in the outside edge of the bat, you bring in bulge, you bring in LBWs. Um, so you've got all modes of dismissals. And we, Covered, we yeah. encourage that, you know, I mean, I think Langer spoken that in the press conference there that Peter Siddle's ability to hit the stumps mm. is one of the great strengths. And I think that, most of the bowlers will be hunting the front pads and stumps early on, especially if the conditions are bowler-friendly. So you can always default to hanging the ball. But I think if you hang the ball, the ball starts to get older, potentially wear away at the swing a bit too much. Um, so I would be encouraging that most of the plans for most of the batters would be bringing the stumps into play. Um, and that brings in the most modes of dismissals. I know that's simple, but I think that's how the bowling plans will you know, go I agree both teams. with you. I, I've written that in the Times today, actually. Uh, I didn't read that. No, article, no, 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 I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and finally, Compton Miller medal, which is for the player of the series. Bit hard to call at this early stage, but who would you put your money on for uh, the, the, the player of the series? I think it'll be a bowler. Do you? Um, purely because the numbers will favour... The bowling units. I think the the runs, the average runs, will, will be down per batter. A Duke um, ball, Duke zips ball, around 2018. Well. Apparently, does more yeah. than the 2019. Yeah, well, I mean, it moved. The, yeah. ball, the new balls last year moved more than any ball I've ever seen. Yeah, during the summer. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, the opening batsman couldn't lay a bat on it half the time. Yeah. Uh, so I think if Australia win the series, I'm going to say Pat Cummins yeah. will be the man. Um, and if England win, I'm going to say Jimmy Anderson. <laughs> So I think that'll okay. be it. So I think that'll be the two most important players. Jimmy, with a slight calf niggle, um, sets him back a little bit, but I don't see that being an issue. I think if he's fully fit, he'll, he'll, he'll get through the series. And uh, I think they've managed him well over the last couple of years and probably haven't you know, burned his candle, so to speak, in overseas tours too much, in, in particular the subcontinent, knowing that he's probably the best bowler in English conditions you know, in the last decade. So I think he'll hold the key and Cummins on the other side of it as well. Right, well, that's our sort of Ashes uh, overview. Um, just as a, a final thing, I asked you last week, the, the listeners, to send us in some ideas for how we could build in England on the legacy of the World Cup, of the World Cup win. We've had uh, a number of uh, very good responses. Thanks for those. Uh, one here is from Thomas Hall, who says uh, that the best way... In fact, most of the people who've responded have said we've got to get more cricket in state schools and obviously more cricket on free-to-air as well. And I particularly like... So that's Thomas Hall. I also like uh, this one here from Charlie Cunningham, who actually, Andrew, is an Australian living uh, now in England but comes from Perth. And he says that uh, he played a lot of cricket in state schools when he lived here as a kid, but he's seen that really decline... And he suggested, um, he says, I would say there needs to be a T20 tournament officially run throughout the country over 10 weeks for schools, this is, ECB to get behind it and get as many schools involved everywhere, give money for equipment, don't leave it to clubs to pick up the slack, be the catalyst 
to create movement and more T20 involvement, uh, a, build, a, a nationwide T20 tournament for state schools as well as, as obviously private schools. Does that happen in Australia and is that a good idea? Yeah, I think access to schools is, is huge. It happens in Australia. It's um, probably the best time that you can get access to, to kids and you get into school and you sell the message of how good the game is and it could be their first interaction with the game as well. Uh, I think too often we rely on clubs and you know put out the flyers and say that there's going to be such and such on down at a crib club and you'll get three or four kids turning up, whereas when you roll through into schools... They get time out of class, which they love for starters, um, yeah. and, and they're outdoors um, being active. So I think that it's really positive. Even if they don't take the game up, they're out, outside during that time being active, learning new skills, um, being exposed to a new game. So I think it makes perfect sense to, to, to access the schools. Um, that's your biggest population of, of, of kids, clearly, in, you know, during those hours. Um, and yeah, the competitions is a great idea. Um, putting something on the line, the ECB getting behind it. I'd like to see it being the 100. Um, and branded up um, in the zones yeah. and, and having the the shirts and being assigned to you know if you're the Birmingham, Birmingham based team ring fencing that with Worcester and uh, yeah so Warwickshire. it starts on a regional yeah. basis yeah and then yeah. narrows in and yeah. and they do that within so within Victoria and I speak the experience within Cricket Victoria but pretty much now um, you know it used to be the the Bush Rangers brand but it's now taken over by the Renegades and Stars and the, and the states split in two east and west and. Um, they go through knockouts and they all converge on, on, on one tournament. So it's so been what done. age is that? Um, that's within the schools. So uh, sort of under 18 or yeah, something. Yeah, so everything's school branded. School teams. School teams, everything's branded uh, red or green, uh, and I think it's fantastic. And, and as I said, the, the kids love the, the new colours, and I'm sure that they'll be um, attracted to the 100 colours. The marketers will get that right, and that's probably the perfect opportunity to launch that um, to, the, to the new fan base. So I think that's a fantastic idea. Great. Well, listen. Thanks very much for your time. It's been uh, been good talking to you and, and hearing you know the roots of your success and so on and what you think about the Ashes uh, forthcoming. Just a, a reminder for, for listeners about the Cricketer Magazine. You can get a subscription for a year, a special rate of twenty pounds nineteen. If you subscribe in the next couple of weeks, we've got all those covers of different players of, of World Cup winners. All eleven of the World Cup winners have their own cover, so you could even write in and ask for your specific favoured cover. Uh, it's £20.19 if you go to thecricketer.com forward slash celebrate. And just one final thing, uh, I've brought out a book, Cricket's Greatest Rivalry, The Ashes in 12 Great Matches. And what I'm going to do for the next five weeks is just give you a little extract from that book. Uh, I recorded an audio book as well. This first extract is sort of really telling you what The Ashes is all about. It has been called a perfume pot a useless artefact, a silly little egg cup. It is barely six inches high and sits in a glass case at Lord's Cricket Ground. It looks like something your grandmother has at the back of her kitchen cabinet that was handed down to her by great-uncle Harry. Inside it is, well, something. A thin layer of debris. Could be ashes, could be dust. It doesn't really matter. That little urn means everything to the people of England and Australia. It has captured their imagination for a hundred years and counting. Sweat, blood and tears have been shed, jubilation and despair felt, and lives radically altered in the constant quest for its reclamation. The Ashes Urn is, of course, just a symbol of something of much greater significance. England against Australia at cricket transcends sport. It's old world against new, northern hemisphere versus southern, conquerors against colonials. 
Australia was claimed on behalf of Britain by Captain James Cook in 1770. Ever since, Australia has strived to establish its own identity. Its success against the mother country at cricket remains a barometer of the state of both nations. At a more basic level, this enduring rivalry is about intransigent fathers and impudent sons. The majority of Australians, 55%, are, after all, British descendants, or were anyway. Don Bradman's grandfather was born in Suffolk. Ray Lindwall was of Irish stock, so is Glenn McGrath. Michael Slater's parents are from Durham. Could you get more English names than Keith Miller, Mark Taylor, Steve Waugh or Michael Clarke? England versus Australia, the oldest surviving international sporting contest in the world, dating from 1877, is essentially an age-old family feud. The Ashes is a 137-year battle for bragging rights. Here are two quotes from totally different eras and opposite sides that emphasise the idea. The Australians are uneducated and an unruly mob. Douglas Jardine, 1928. I couldn't wait to have a crack at them. I thought, stuff that stiff upper lip crap, let's see how stiff it is when it's split. Jeff Thompson, 1974. If that translates as brain versus brawn, it's a gross misrepresentation. There are just as many intellects and thickos in both countries. But the intensity of this rivalry has its roots in the idea of the English as upper-class snobs and the Australians as low-life convicts. Australia has shed its inferiority complex, but the legacy lingers. Mike Brearley, the Ashes-winning England captain, describes playing against Australia thus. You are carrying all the prejudices of England. You are representing deep and paranoid urges, jingoistic sentiments you may prefer to distance yourself from, but it is unavoidable. And this is Australia's greatest bowler, Shane Warne. It's been drummed into you since the age of about five that if you're Australian, you've just got to beat the Poms. Even if the players try to submerge these emotions, the public from each side will keep them afloat. This book is the story of the ashes, how the rivalry began, the way it ebbed and flowed, the crafty, brilliant, appalling, mystifying characters it has featured, the heroes and villains it has unearthed. England and Australia have so far played 330 Ashes Test matches against each other. Australia are 28 wins ahead. Even though 90 of these games have been drawn, there's rarely been a dull moment. While reflecting on many of these encounters, the book focuses on 12 great matches, chosen not just because they were epics in themselves, but also because they defined an era, a style of play, and had a major impact on the two countries. My own first encounter with the Ashes was in 1968. As an eight-year-old, my hero was Colin Cowdery, and I saw him on a black-and-white TV celebrate his 100th test by making a century against the Australians at Edgbaston. I liked the way he gracefully eased the abrasive Australian bowlers to the cover boundary, almost apologising for doing so. At the end of that series, I also watched a posse of spectators dry up the oval pitch with mops and blankets to allow time for another of my favourites, Derek Underwood, to bowl England to a dramatic victory. It planted in my mind how important it was for an Englishman to beat the Aussies and to play them on a wet pitch. I never earned the chance to attempt it myself, but I aided the cause by bowling every prominent English batsman of my generation into form during the county season. Unfortunately, I did the same for a few Australians in Sydney and Perth club cricket.
I was also on hand as a sort of 13th man when Mike Gatting's side won the Ashes in Australia in 86-7, ferrying drinks and food to the team. With that captain, it was a harder job than playing. I've seen all or part of around 100 Ashes tests through six decades. And that's the best and most unique thing about England v Australia. It's a never-ending contest. At the finish of one series, you're already starting to think about the beginning of the next. Apart from during the two world wars, there's never been more than two years between encounters. It's an interminable vie for supremacy, as perpetual as employees versus the taxman. The myth of the Ashes Urn provides that continuum. No one can keep it, or own it, or even touch it. It's the holy grail of sport, always tantalisingly out of reach. In the end, England versus Australia is about mutual affection. There is a common bond of language, of culture, of heritage, of values. We may be 12,000 miles apart, but really we are joined together as one big family. The English actually love the Australians, though they rarely admit it. The feelings are reciprocated, but we love beating each other at cricket even more. Final thank you to Andrew. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll keep you updated with The Ashes. The next one of these podcasts will be on Saturday after the third day of the first test, hoping they're on top. See you then. Podcast Network.